February 14th is a special day for Arizona. It doesn't have anything to do with Valentine's Day, though I always thought the state's tourism industry could do a little more with that than they have. No, the real importance of February 14th is that it was on that day in 1912, President William Howard Taft signed the bill that officially organized Arizona as the nation's 48th state. The last state in the continental U.S., by the way. As you, who have been with me from the beginning, know, that's also the date when I chose to launch this podcast. Because when was a more appropriate time to launch such a project than on the state's birthday? As a completely random aside, I'm already thinking of ideas about how to mark the state's birthday and the podcast's one-year anniversary this coming February. But if you remember anything from our time together, let it be that history has a profound sense of humor and, in particular, loves irony. And that even extends to the date of February 14th. Because if we go further back into Arizona's past, we'll find another more ignominious anniversary that also falls on that day. It was very similar to the one in 1912. A Congress declared Arizona its own thing, separate from New Mexico, and sent their decision to the president for his signature. And so it was that on February 14, 1862, exactly 50 years before Taft took pen in hand to create the state of Arizona, Jefferson Davis gave his approval to officially organize the Confederate Territory of Arizona. It turns out that particular February was a banner month for the rebels, as they were making gains on multiple fronts. And for the briefest of moments, it did look like Arizona would permanently be under the stars and bars. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 38, A Good Month to Be a Rebel. When it came to the West, it's fair to say that the Confederacy was flying high in late 1861 and early 1862. And that's really what I want to talk about today, as we bring several threads up to and through February of 1862. There are a few things of major importance that happen in quick succession that winter, most of it good for the rebels. You might remember from our discussion last week that Confederate leaders were eyeing the Southwest as a perfect way to supplement their reserves of men, firepower, and mineral wealth. Plus, having a footpath to California was a very attractive option for a self-proclaimed country worried about a Union blockade. You will also remember that in late July 1861, Confederate Lieutenant Colonel John R. Baylor had practically waltzed into New Mexico from Texas and had been welcomed with open arms by the rebellious citizens in Mesilla. Tucson had followed suit shortly afterward, leading Baylor to just simply declare the Confederate territory of Arizona with himself as military governor, of course. Things were also starting to go their way elsewhere in New Mexico. After U.S. Major Isaac Lind had basically thrown his hands up in surrender at the first sign of trouble, Confederate troops had occupied Fort Fillmore near modern Las Cruces. 
In response to this, the sort of kind of nearby Fort Stanton, which sat just west of the modern infamous Roswell, New Mexico, was also abandoned. Union troops on their way to either Santa Fe or Albuquerque destroyed everything that couldn't be carried with them to avoid it falling into the hands of the rebels. Baylor would send men to occupy Fort Stanton, though he would later pull these back out of fear of stretching himself a little too thin. Consequently, he would also try to capture the eastbound troops that were pulling out of Fort Buchanan and Fort Breckenridge in southern Arizona, but after they received news of the fall of Fort Fillmore, they were able to avoid Baylor and his forces. The man left in charge of the Department of New Mexico, U.S. Lieutenant Colonel Edward R.S. Canby, had been jolted by Baylor's invasion and sent requests out to the governor of New Mexico and Colorado to organize volunteer regiments to help repel the invasion. In addition to manpower shortages, he was also hampered by a lack of proper funding, with Canby reporting that some of the regular soldiers had not been paid in a year, and many of the volunteers hadn't been paid at all. It didn't help that Washington's attention was a little divided at the moment. Because just before Baylor decided to take Arizona, Union and Confederate forces had met at a little place called Bull Run, north of the city of Manassas in Virginia, which led everyone to realize, holy cow, this war will not be a walk in the park. At the same time that Canby was trying to get New Mexico into order, a former subordinate named Henry Hopkins Sibley, now a brigadier general in the Confederate Army, was doing his own plotting for New Mexico to follow up on and consolidate all that Baylor had done. Tasked with driving Union forces from New Mexico and seizing whatever military equipment he could, Sibley arrived in San Antonio and began raising men to accomplish just that. By November 1861, he reported that he was ready to move into New Mexico and link up with Baylor, who was to be kept on in his post as the territory's governor. And we are talking no small force here, but at least 3,500 men, all armed and possessing at least six howitzers. Sibley also issued a proclamation to everyone in New Mexico and Arizona, making the standard promises about if they came over to the Confederacy, everything the army needed would be purchased fairly and on the open market. You know, hey, come join our side and everything's going to be sunshine and rainbows. And this advance hit at the moment the Union forces under Canby were suffering from severely low morale, mostly due to that whole lack of proper payment thing. Actual revolts would break out in January 1862 at several Union camps because of the constantly delayed pay. The only good news for the Union is that, beside a few skirmishes, there were no real engagements between the two sides through the fall of 1861. We're going to leave these two armies here for now, but we'll come back to them a little bit later on. I want to turn our attention now to what was actually happening in Arizona. Remember that in August 1861, Tucson had gone all in with Mesilla to welcome the Confederacy. Tired of their petitions for territorial status being denied by Congress, upset by the withdrawal of federal troops, feeling hemmed in on all sides by newly aggressive Apache, and falling back a little bit on old regional sympathies, many were ready for this brave new thing called the Confederacy to take over. 
to take full advantage of this, on January 27, 1862, Sibley ordered Captain Sherrod Hunter, who had been under Baylor, to march to Tucson and take it for the rebels. Additionally, he was to try and open communication lines with Southern California to complete the plans to carve out the entire Southwest for the Southern cause. Hunter and roughly 100 men set out at once, arriving in Tucson on February 28, 1862. In his reports, Hunter says that he was greeted warmly by pretty much everyone in town, which might not actually be that far from the truth. Most ardent pro-Unionists had fled the territory already, and those who remained, as we have mentioned several times now, were at least sympathetic to the rebel cause. Of course, state historian Marshall Trimble does make the valid point that with Apaches striking everywhere, quote, most were happy to see soldiers, no matter what color the uniform, end quote. And speaking of allegiances, it's here we have to dive into the strange case of Sylvester Mowry. I wish to revise and extend my statements about the former soldier and owner of the Patagonia mine from last week, where I said that he was now throwing his weight behind the Confederacy. Turns out I was a little too eager to throw him under the bus. As I dug deeper into the subject, it turns out that Maori's allegiances are actually a little harder to pin down. We will get into this in a future episode, but when the Confederacy eventually does retreat from Tucson, Maori will be arrested and put on trial on charges of aiding the Confederacy after they occupied the city. One of the main charges was that Maori sold percussion caps, somewhere between 1,000 and 5,000 depending on which estimate you're using, to a detachment of Hunter's men who came to the mine. But this accusation comes primarily from a letter written by a German metallurgist named T.L. Rudolf Schooner. Schooner had been recently dismissed from the mine because Maori had caught him trying to steal some silver, which makes his testimony very suspect to say the least. Now, we cannot say that Maori did not have some twinges of Southern sympathy. Despite hailing from Rhode Island originally, he endorsed slavery. He had also petitioned for the Confederacy to come to Arizona, though this latter part is mainly out of a desire to finally get Arizona declared a territory, since Congress had spent years sitting on their hands. Remember that Maori had been a delegate to Congress from the proposed territory, and had interfaced with a good deal of Southern congressmen about the project. Another piece of dubious evidence used against him is that he had given a welcome to one Palantine Robinson, who was characterized by witnesses as anything from a Southern sympathizer to a rabid promoter of the Confederate cause. Though there is also the fairly damning evidence that Maori had boasted that he expected to be made governor of Arizona under the new regime. Some sources even claimed that he was willing to bet $100 that he would be made governor within a month's time. However, alongside all this, one historian made the very valid point that in early 1862, Maori was a non-combatant. Remember from our previous episodes that Maori was a West Point-trained soldier, and West Point-trained soldiers were in short supply these days. As the same historian puts it, if Maori had really wanted to, he could have easily been commissioned as at least a colonel on whichever side he chose. 
but instead he stayed out of the fighting and concentrated on making a profit at his mine. Additional testimony at his trial suggests that he appealed to both the Union and the Confederacy for help in defending against the Apache, which really appears to be him saying, please, please, please help to anyone who would listen. And remember that I quoted Mowry in last week's episode complaining about self-proclaimed Governor Baylor and his associates. Funny enough, that quote actually came from a letter he wrote to Jefferson Davis himself. After reviewing everything, to me at least, it seems that Mowry was simply trying to achieve his goals through whichever government he thought would get him there. And those goals appear to have been mainly fighting off the Apache, making a profit at his mine, and getting to the top of Arizona's political food chain. So he probably did celebrate Hunter's taking of Tucson. He even admitted to passing along some ammunition, but under the stipulation that it be used to fend off the Apache. So, Mallory probably was not a zealous true believer in the Confederate cause, but was simply following the 34th rule of acquisition. War is good for business. William Claude Jones, on the other hand, was certainly more zealous for the Confederates. While definitely also an opportunist, you might remember from last week that he had given a passionate speech in Massilla supporting the coming of rebel troops to the area but he also had the bad luck of being in Santa Fe when Baylor crossed into New Mexico and would spend most of 1861 in a jail cell for his allegiances. Whether these men were active Southern partisans or not didn't really matter at this precise moment because the South was in control. Hunter set up headquarters in Tucson and just days after arriving dispatched an important diplomatic mission. He sent Colonel James Riley with 20 men south to Urres in Sonora to meet with Governor Pesquera and ask that the Mexican official recognize the Confederacy and to arrange for supplies. According to early state historian James H. McClintock, Riley returned and said that he had a friendly meeting with the governor, though Pesquera only agreed to sell supplies in exchange for gold. Turns out that the governor of Sonora did not trust Confederate paper money at all with very good reason. McClintock is also sure to note that when Union officials learned of this meeting, they were all quick to send notes to Pesquera to warn him against dealing with the rebels. The last interesting tidbit from this adventure is that the party that went into Sonora also included James Tevis, the former station manager and Cochise adversary at Apache Pass, who was now serving as a lieutenant in the Confederate Army. With Hunter now in control of the one true city of Arizona in February 1862, I want to rewind to cover a bit of what I hinted at in the intro to today's episode, the establishment of the Confederate territory of Arizona. Of course, Baylor had just sort of proclaimed this territory as a fait accompli back in August 1861, something that seemed to have been confirmed when Sibley made his way west to follow up but to make everything nice and official, because the Confederacy was a real country with rules and whatnot, don't you know, this act had to properly be followed up on by the Congress and then signed by the President. The enabling act for the Territory of Arizona was passed by the Confederate legislature on January 18, 1862. 
By the way, you'll sometimes see that date as when the Confederate territory of Arizona was created. However, the act itself said it would not be in effect until a proclamation was sent out by President Jefferson Davis, which he did on February 14th, as we mentioned at the top of the episode. According to early state historian Thomas Farish, quote, This enabling act was a long instrument, covering almost every point. The principal thing, however, being that everywhere slavery was fully protected and established. End quote. Among the almost every point outlined for the new territory were things like the vote would be given to every white male over the age of 21 that was a resident of Arizona, uh, that the territory would be split into three judicial districts, with justices of the peace hearing all cases where damages were less than $100. If damages were more than $1,000, the appeals could be made to the Supreme Court of the Confederacy. However, any case involving slavery, regardless of the dollar amount, could also be sent up to the Supreme Court. Another interesting tidbit was that the Pima and Maricopa were to be protected when it came to the property they were already holding. Executive power in the territory was to be held by the governor, who would be appointed by the president of the Confederacy to a six-year term. The office of Secretary of State was also created, which would also be a six-year term. The territory was to have a bicameral legislature, consisting of a council and a house of representatives, each to have no more than 13 members, which would be adjusted as the population changed. Finally, the territorial capital was to be Massilla, and the borders were to be those that Baylor had proclaimed, that is, between Texas in the east and the Colorado in the west, the 34th parallel in the north, and Mexico in the south. Though this organization never really got up and going, Baylor was confirmed as the military and civilian governor. In office, as we'll see in a coming episode, he didn't actually get to enjoy for that long. The month of February 1862 would also put a large feather in the cap of the rebels. On February 21st, so a week after Davis signed the official proclamation making Arizona its own thing, but also a week before Captain Hunter rode in to claim Tucson, Confederate troops in New Mexico would have their first decisive clash with the Union. The Confederate troops under General Sibley had advanced up the Rio Grande towards Fort Craig, which sat roughly 30 miles south of modern Socorro, New Mexico. On February 16th, they offered battle to Lieutenant Colonel Camby, who was holed up in Fort Craig. Camby declined this invitation, wishing to choose a time and place that would be a little more advantageous for his mostly volunteer army, in whom he placed little confidence. So the Confederate troops retreated a little, and it looked like Sibley was thinking of bypassing the fort altogether, considering it too much of a stronghold to take. But with these two armies near each other, we do get one of those funnier war stories that I want to pass along. A couple episodes ago, as we brought the Bascom Affair to a close, I mentioned that the troops from Fort Buchanan recruited a civilian, who was a former dragoon, named James Graydon to head to Apache Pass with them. Graydon, who was nicknamed Patty because what else are you supposed to call an Irishman, I suppose? 
had joined the Union Army and was acting as part of a spy company. On the night of February 20th, he and his men had snuck some mules near the Confederate lines. They actually lashed boxes containing howitzer shells to the mules' backs and then lit the fuses in an attempt to sow some chaos in the enemy camp. However, when they decided to prudently withdraw a bit, the mules, instead of continuing to head toward the rebels, turned around and followed after Graydon and his men. When the shells went off, it luckily didn't hurt anyone, except, you know, the poor mules who didn't survive this. But it did wake the Confederate troops up and cause them to man their guns. Moral of the story? Um, be careful not to use mules that are too loyal, I think. Anyway, the next morning, February 21st, Sibley had his forces move up the Rio Grande to a place called Valverde, or Green Valley, that was roughly six miles north of Fort Craig and a good place to ford the river. However, Union forces had seen the enemy movement and had dispatched soldiers of their own. The resulting Battle of Valverde was an all-day affair that saw somewhere in the neighborhood of 3,000 Union forces and 2,600 Confederate troops duking it out around the crossing. Toward the afternoon, the Union forces had managed to push from the west side of the river to the east and had their artillery savagely firing upon the rebels. Now, the Confederates had set up their own artillery, which was doing a good deal of damage as well, though the Union side seemed to be causing more devastation. Then, a little after three in the afternoon or so, a couple charges of Texan troops managed to storm the artillery battery unit of Captain Alexander McRae. A Confederate soldier is said to have shouted, Surrender, McRae, we don't want to kill you. To which McRae, who was already wounded and leaning on the barrel of one of his guns, responded, quote, I shall never forsake my guns. End quote. The Confederate major leading this charge then approached the gun, placed his hand on it, and the two drew their revolvers and fired at the same time. You can guess the results. Author Ray Colton, whose book The Civil War in the Western Territories is the source for that last story, also has an interesting footnote about this particular piece of artillery stained with the blood of McRae and this Confederate major. It apparently was left in El Paso, where after the Civil War it would remain outside City Hall until it was appropriated for the Mexican Revolution in 1911. Following that, it was returned to El Paso and could still be seen up to World War II when it was hauled away as scrap. Sorry, I love little asides. But back to the actual battle. A furious hand-to-hand -hand fight erupted, but eventually the Southerners were able to get complete control of McRae's artillery. At that point, Canby, who had originally stayed back at Fort Craig, but had taken overall command in the mid-afternoon, saw that further Union attempts would be fruitless. He ordered all troops on the east side of the Rio Grande to retreat back to the West Bank and then eventually back to Fort Craig. The only downside to this is that it exposed the retreating Union soldiers to shelling by the Confederate artillery. The Battle of Valverde was hailed as a Confederate victory. By the measurements of war at the time they had won, Southern forces had held the field and driven the Yankees back. What's more, the capture of McRae's battery had added six guns to their arsenal, 
minus the one that would be left in El Paso, of course. However, if you look at the numbers, the battle doesn't look like much of a win. I wouldn't go so far as to say that the victory was of the Pyrrhic variety, but we should recognize that both the Union and the Confederacy had more than 200 wounded or dead after the battle. So in terms of manpower, it was an even bloody mess. Under a flag of truce, the two sides would spend the next two days retrieving their wounded and burying their dead. A Confederate colonel even rode up to Fort Craig to ask for medical supplies to help his wounded, something that can be ordered be turned over immediately. Speaking of the dead, there was actually someone we know who was left on the battlefield that day. None other than George Nicholas Bascom was present for the Battle of Valverde. He had been promoted to captain and was being transferred from his 7th Infantry to the 16th Infantry, but hadn't been able to join his new outfit yet. He had been overseeing Company C, which is one of the two companies tasked with trying to repel the devastating charges late in the afternoon. According to the mortuary report, Bascom's body had been found on a sandbar in the river, where it had probably fallen during that last Texan charge. As author Terry Mort put it, quote, The Texans had deprived Cochise of the chance for personal revenge against George Bascom. End quote. The young officer would at first be interred at Fort Craig, but later would be taken to the Santa Fe National Cemetery after the fort closed in 1885. His body's location is now unidentifiable, and is believed to be one of the cemetery's unknown markers. Funny enough, given how everyone now thinks of him as a blunderer, at the time he was honored for his bravery. Just a year later, in 1863, a fort would be named for him near Tucumcari, New Mexico, to help U.S. Army soldiers keep a better eye on the Comanches and other hostile tribes. However, Fort Bascom would be short-lived, eventually shutting down in 1870. Okay, so just to recap. By the end of February 1862, the Confederacy had officially proclaimed the territory of Arizona, had gained a victory against Union forces at the Battle of Alverde, and had taken Tucson without any problems. Things were looking great for the rebels. However, this success would ultimately prove fleeting. The Southern victories had caused Union officials to take the rebel threat in the Southwest seriously, and even as Hunter was marching into Tucson, a force was being sent from California to drive him out. Sibley would find the victory at Valverde hard to reproduce, and the presence of Fort Craig would cause headaches down the road. And we can't forget that it didn't matter that Bascom had met his end on a sandbar in the Rio Grande, the massive hurricane that he had helped set off, Cochise and his Chiricahua Apache, were still wreaking havoc. So join me next time while we watch as the Confederate gains evaporate just like, well, rain in the desert. And also see a mostly volunteer army come at the Confederate territory of Arizona from the West. But I do have a couple of programming announcements before I sign off. The first is that there will be no new episode next week, Sunday, November 29th. This coming week is Thanksgiving here in the United States, which means a lot of time will be spent with family and on other holiday festivities, and 
consequently not on writing or recording. With that band-aid now ripped off, I feel this is also a good chance to talk about how I envision the rest of the year going. Right now, my plan is to take this coming week off, eat a lot of turkey, and be ready to release a new episode on December 6th. I plan on releasing three new episodes in December, on the 6th, 13th, and the 20th. But after that, we are getting into Christmas and New Year's, which is going to involve some traveling for me and a lot less time to write and record. Because of all that, I'm planning on taking two weeks off for the holidays, which means no new episodes on December 27th and January 3rd. Alright, so there you have it. We'll be on break next week, and after that, you'll have three more episodes to finish up the year. But I'll be back full-time starting January 10th to keep rushing headlong toward both the state's 109th birthday and this podcast's one-year anniversary in February. And of course, toward all the fascinating bits of Arizona history we have yet to cover. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. And remember, I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.